What is up, Turf Sub Radio Nation? I'm Beth Berry. I'm your hostess for Ahead of the Curve. Every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, I can't wait to have you there. Oh my gosh, this is an exciting Wednesday. Welcome to Wednesday. I'm your hostess, Beth Berry, here on Ahead of the Curb, your industry, your station, Turfs Up Radio. I get asked all of the time, because this show is about technology and what's new and exciting. Beth, what is the very best weed control that I can use? And it's open-ended, because I can tell you nobody reads labels. But my guest today is Aaron Hathaway from New Farm, and we are going to talk about a product that has had has been hyped for years. This is a non-24D forerunner, and it's really, really, really landing this week at an advanced turf solution uh, dealer, and we can get it to you, my dear listeners, right away. Aaron, for those in Turfs Up Radio Nation that aren't familiar with your background, give us the elevator pitch on Aaron. Sure. Thanks, Beth. Um, so I've been in, man, long time now, as I think back on the years. I've been in turf uh, for over 20 years and okay. I started as, started as a, um, researcher at Michigan state university and, uh, it just kind of happened by accident. I was going to school to be a teacher and I was working summers at this turf farm over that there at MSU. And, um, you know, things happened and I ended up going to grad school at MSU and, and even after grad school stayed on and was doing mostly weed research, um, at the turf farm over there. And so I did research at MSU for about 19 years. And then four and a half years ago, I started with New Farm as a tech services manager. And so, like I said, most of my background is, is weed research, doing a lot of weed control, weed management, cultural practice. I need to do a lot of PGR work, some of which can be used as herbicides as well as, as kind of herbicides. So anyway, a lot around herbicide use, a lot around weed control and turf systems. That's a crazy cool background. But when you were there doing research, could you have gone down other paths like medical? You were going to be a teacher. I assume you were going to maybe teach science. Why did you choose turf research? Yeah, so um, I don't, it's funny. I don't really know, I don't know that I chose it. It kind of chose me. And so I, I happen to know, somebody who uh, it's a guy by the name of Ron Calhoun and he was at Michigan state for a long time as well. And uh, I would call him my, my professional mentor. So he kind of got me involved. I had gone to church with Ron a little bit. And so um, I ended up kind of just working summers. It was a summer job while I was even in high school. And so I got interested in it. um, And I don't know. That was that was kind of it. I didn't really choose it. I was looking for a, a teaching job. I was going to teach English. I was a English major, math minor. I was going to teach English and math. And um, I was looking for a job and wasn't finding one right away. And he said, hey, you should just you should go to grad school. So I went to grad school and, and that was it. After that, there was no turning back. Did you ever teach at all? I, only, I did my student teaching and then I did some um, substitute teaching and that's it. Same. I was going to be a teacher. And as soon as I, in the old days, because I'm old, Aaron, uh, you didn't, you weren't allowed to student teach until the your, the very end, right? You'd gone to school for three uh-huh. and a half years. And I did not like it. 
this was a bad okay. model. Like, and I was going to teach history. So I was 21 at the time. And these were high school seniors at an inner city school in Indianapolis. And I was really having trouble gaining command of the room, let's say. And at the same time, sure. I was working part-time at Kimlon. I'm like, this lawn care thing is a lot more fun than teaching, <laughs> sadly, because we need more cool teachers. Okay, quick question before we get started on herbicides. But over the time you were doing research, let's just take the Midwest, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, for example. Were the types of weeds that were typically found in residential properties, did that change or has that remained constant over the years? Um, a lot of them have remained constant, but I do see new weeds that I've, I've just uh, never seen before pop up or they come further north. Uh, one example of that is, is goosegrass. Um, I can tell you that I used to do this. I used to teach a class. So uh, weed management and turf systems, I, I taught a class and one a part of that class was uh, weed ID. Weed ID, you know, now that we have technology and there's so many websites with different weeds and, and it's on our phones, we can easily take a photo and ID weeds. I, I taught a big part of the class was weed ID. And so I would go around campus looking for weeds to pot so that I had them over the winter so that I could teach weed ID. And so I know which weeds were always difficult to find because they just weren't in Michigan. And one of those was goosegrass. So that's one example of one that I, I didn't see for a long time. I had to go to a very specific site find it, harvest it, and put it in these pots. And then now I see goosegrass all over the place um, in Michigan. It's not a huge problem, and I'll say yet, but I see it way more often than I used to. And so, yeah, I think I think the weeds that you find, they they move further north or and or they move further south. And so we start to see weeds that we didn't see before. But all the major culprits, you know, wild violet, ground ivy, um, yellow nut sedge, uh, white clover, all the ones that, that I hear people complaining about the most, crabgrass, um, those ones are pretty constant. Those, those ones are ubiquitous throughout most lawns um, in Michigan and in the north, or the Midwest, I guess I should say. Interesting. And are all, have there been any new discoveries? Like, you know, occasionally we'll find a new animal here. Have there been any mm-hmm. new grasses named, or grasses, weeds named? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't, not that I know of Beth, I don't, um, I don't recall anybody, you know, finding a new, completely new plant. Um, but I know that buttercup, so figwort buttercup or, um, you know, the one that people have been dealing with, that's one of those, um, it's got these tubules in the ground and so you see it in the, in the spring, especially under trees. I know that it's not a new discovery, but that's just another example of one that I, I never heard anything about, and now it's absolutely everywhere, and it's really, really difficult to control. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So in the time you've been in this industry, tell me about the biggest breakthroughs in herbicides. Like, Can you kind of mm-hmm. uh, put them on a timeline and tell us how those emerged? So for me, it's really easy to answer that question because uh, every new thing is, you know, it's shiny, it's new, it's fun to, to research. And so any new active ingredient that came out was always really exciting. And I know that in my time, uh, Quinclorac came out. It was new. It was a brand oh. new. And Quinclorac was really cool because um, you not only had post-emergence control of crabgrass, which we, we had a claim uh, extra for Noxicrop for that, but Quinclorac. You could tank mix with all these different active ingredients, phenoxaprop, you 
cannot just go around and tank mix it with anything you want. Um, and so Quinclorac was post-merge with crabgrass, and you also got um, broadleaf weed activity from it as well. So Quinclorac was one that was in my lifetime that was really uh, exciting and new. What and year then, was Quinclorac? Uh, it was, man, the maybe years, early 2000s. The years all go together, don't they? Right, yeah. yeah. Early 2000s, I'm thinking. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but... I'm sure I was doing research with it before it, before it was put on the market. Very cool. Um, yep, that's one we like. Yeah. So that's one. And then, um, you know, it's an, an exciting breakthrough. You find something that, that we didn't have, now we do have, and you find out all these different ways to use it. You find out all these different ways to mix it with, with herbicides. You find all its strengths. You find all its weaknesses. And so we did all that, I feel like. And um, then there is... You know, for me, it's uh, the PPOs, I guess I would say, are kind of fun and exciting as well because they're different. Now, talk, um, talk to me like I'm a fifth grader, as Michael Scott would say, PPO. Yeah, so um, they're protax inhibitors, and these are active ingredients like parfenterzone, which is in speed zone. Yep. Um, flumioxazin, which we have in SurePower. Sulfenterzone, um, which uh, is in Forerunner, which we'll talk about. And then uh, pyroflupin, which is in 4-speed XP. And these are all membrane uh, disruptors. So they contact the membrane of the plant. They break down the cuticle of the plant. And what they can help, they, they can certainly on their own kill some plants, especially some of the annuals that have just just germinated and they don't have much of a cuticle. You can spray something like carpet plants and it could kill it on its own. But the way we use them is really fun. At least in my estimation, um, the way we use products like Carfentrazone, Pyroflufin, and even Flumioxazin to some degree in one herbicide in SurePower is we put a dash of them in some of our herbicides. We just throw it in there. So SpeedZone is an example of this, the three-way plus Carfentrazone. We put a dash in there, and it helps to break down the cuticle of the plant, and you actually can get more uptake of some of the other active ingredients because that cuticle does a lot of things to kind of repel some of the herbicides. And so these PPOs are, are different in that way because we're not using them really as a standalone herbicide. We're almost using them almost as an adjuvant um, to some degree. I did not know that. This is very exciting to me. So P- PPO, again, stands for? Um, it's proto porphyrinogen oxidase. So okay. most people just say protox inhibitors. Protox inhibitors. That is crazy. I, I love that. So yeah. the reason I I love talking about weed controls because when I was the director of customer service at Scott's Miracle Grow, we would relentlessly examine service call data. <clears throat> this was back when gas cost a normal amount of money, but we would talk about how much it cost us as a the second biggest lawn care company in the world to run a service call for weeds. And as you can imagine, it's astronomical. Today it's around $78 for a company to go out and do a free service call, and that's the gas, the labor, the materials that might be needed on an average size U.S. home, and um, the opportunity cost, right? So you're not out treating mm-hmm. a, a lawn that, that you could charge for during that time. And we also learned, Aaron, in relentlessly examining 
cancel data that the number one reason a customer would cancel was because of weeds. Now, I worked at Scott's miracle Grow. Our fertilizer had been around since Abraham Lincoln, and we wanted to think it was this bright, beautiful lawn, and uh, it was at the time we were launching sulfur-coated urea, and I can tell you in the Scott's boardroom, even though obviously we sold herbicides as well um, on the uh, B to C market, it was the fertilizer. So we all thought, oh, it's these bright green lawns that are keeping customers. But if they had Mm -hmm. to call us twice in a season for additional weed control, which as you can imagine was pretty common because some of it is agronomic um, conditions, right? That are, it rains, you know, you weren't expecting rain, but it happens right afterwards and it didn't have time to absorb into the plant or horticultural practices by the homeowner that might be promoting Mm -hmm. these additional weeds, but you only had two strikes or the customer was gone. And we had proven that time and again. So premium herbicides came to top of mind when I talked to turf and ornamental companies that say, I need to figure out how to retain customers longer. So they'll talk a lot about marketing techniques and how do I bring customers on and here's my referral program, but and here's my cost per lead and here's my cost per sale. But there hasn't been historically enough conversation around what do you have to invest in in your business to ensure that you're getting the absolute best weed control. And I spend a lot of time at the advanced turf counters talking to our our counter sales folks, and the number one complaint we get from customers we sell over-the-counter weed control to is it didn't kill this weed. I needed it to kill nimble will. It didn't kill nimble will. And then Dave Bash told me this. He works with us. He said, Beth, if they would just read the label. Now, this is scary on a number of fronts if they're not reading the label, right? Do they understand the rate and application methods? But they misread those labels and then they're out there with you know trying to nail the weeds you were talking about and actually the weapon of choice doesn't include that and so that's why I am so excited you're here today we've got to take a break and talk to some of our turf up radio sponsors here but when we come back I'd love to dig into that like if I own a turf and ornamental business what should my herbicide strategy be my name is Beth Barry we will be right back And we are back. We are back with my guest, Aaron Hathaway. Aaron, thank you for being here today. You are the weed expert extraordinaire. You were recommended to me by several people when I said, I need to know exactly all the things about weed control and the exciting new launch of Forerunner coming up by New Farm. But first, let's talk about an overarching herbicide strategy. So you're sitting down with a turf and ornamental business, and they say, Tell me what I need to include. Obviously, cost per acre is always, um, cost per square foot is always a consideration. So we got to look at it through that lens on the most part. But what's your recommendation? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And there's actually a a ton that goes into it. And I I know that you know that. I know that a lot of our listeners understand that because it's this game that you play. Um, It really comes down to return on investment. So if you're going to spend more for herbicide, what are you getting from it? And so um, the cool part is, I don't always have to do that. I, I, from the research standpoint, I get to look at different herbicides and just compare them based on their, their merits as herbicides, not based on price. And so 
sadly, I often I often don't know prices per per acre. Um, of course, I can I can look them up and I can figure it out, but that's not always my goal. But I know for that these end users of these products, it's so important to do what you were talking about, Beth, where you you do some research figuring out what what's costing you the most money. If you find that it's callbacks, then why are these callbacks occurring? And then how can you mitigate that? And how can you do it efficiently? Obviously, you could mitigate it by using, possibly, by using the most expensive herbicides all the time. But how do you, obviously, it's our goal to, to make money, um, not necessarily just to make money, but that you have to make money to keep a business afloat. And so to do that, you really do have to start asking all these questions. And so putting together a program, I think, is based on some principles, but then within those principles, I think things can change based on experience and where you are and how you make applications. And so basically, to me, it comes down to um, not just one thing. It's a, a bunch of things that, that you put together to kind of figure out what your program should look like. One of those things is timing, because not every t application timing um, is the same. And so I've, I've done a lot of as far as efficacy, I've done a lot of speaking to end users, um, and I always go back to this point of fall time is the best time for weed control, at, at least in, especially as you move further north when you, you have a true fall and winter, although this can be true as you move south as well. So fall in a fall-timed application works better often than a springtime application for one simple reason. Most of the, uh, most of the weeds that we have in our lawns are perennials. Um, and some people might have heard it said that weeds mimic um, the crop. And so that's true in turf. We have a perennial plant that's, especially as, like I said, as we move further north where we're not transitioning, it's just a perennial plant that we're trying to keep uh, happy by fertilizing, by watering, by doing all these cultural practices. And the weeds that infiltrate are often just mimicking that particular crop because they want the same inputs as the crop does. And so we have a ton of perennial weeds that become problematic in turf. So wild violet, ground ivy, dandelion, plantain, all of these are perennials. And for sure we have annuals as well, but we have tons of perennials that are, are always uh, difficult to control. And so in the fall time, getting back to this timing principle, in the fall, these plants are preparing for the winter. So they're moving sugars or, or photosynthate to the root, to vegetative parts, um, to get ready for the winter. That's that's what they do so that they can survive the winter because these plants, they have to respire all winter long to survive. And so they need uh, to build up carbohydrates as much as possible. Herbicides work. Good herbicides that translocate. I shouldn't say good. Herbicides that translocate um, move with the, these photosynthates. So in the fall, when plants are, take a dandelion, for instance, it's starting to store sugars in that taproot. It's building up that taproot so it can survive the winter. The herbicides move with those sugars, so they move um, where those sugars often move. And so a fall-timed herbicide often works much better than a spring-timed herbicide because in the spring, the opposite is happening. They just went through the winter. Now they don't have really much foliage, if at all, any foliage, and they have to push up as much foliage as possible so that they can start photosynthating again after the winter. And that means all that active ingredient is moving um, above the ground. And so... We actually, in the spring, we see more activity when we make a herbicide application, but often we get very little movement below the ground to the taproot of a dandelion, for instance, and often we get less control. And dandelion is often not on that list of difficult weeds to control for people 
because we see so much, uh, I always call it fireworks. We see all this death and the mayhem above the ground in the spring, but that taproot often pushes up new foliage later in the summer or later in the spring. And so this whole concept of timing of herbicides, I think is the one main driver of making decisions. And, and this is what I mean by that. In the fall, you can get much better activity from any herbicide. So it makes sense to possibly just use a, a three-way, one of the less expensive herbicides, one that contains 240 and CPP dicamba. Those three active ingredients control a whole host of weeds. And so you make that application in the, in the fall, you know, a late-timed fall application when you're going to get really good movement, you get much more activity out of some of these active ingredients. Um, although it can make sense to use a premium herbicide, one that contains triclopyr or fluoroxapyr, for instance, or quinclorac to get control of certain weeds. And then in the spring, I think it makes more sense to be a little bit more creative with what you might use. And then in the summer, so these, these different timings, fall, spring, summer, summer, it's really difficult to control weeds because one, they're not growing as quickly. They're, um, they're not spending as much energy growing because it's hot. The plants will shut down at a certain temperature. You need growth for control. If you spray a herbicide on a plant that's simply not growing, you're not going to control it, um, if it if it's a herbicide that needs to translocate. And so in the summer, you need often a more premium herbicide. Those PPOs that I mentioned, those protox inhibitors, can help break down cuticles that have been built up uh, over the spring and the summer. And so you need to break down those cuticles. Often you have crabgrass in the summer, you have nut sedge in the summer. So using specific active ingredients like quinclorac for crabgrass, like sulfentrazone or an ALS inhibitor for nut sedge um, is important. And so I just said a, a ton of stuff and I didn't really give a very specific way to, or specific herbicides to spray, but I think all of these things, and this is why it's so difficult. This is why we have so many different programs from different uh, end users out there because there's really a lot to think about and not every even area is the same. Um, and I'll give a quick example of that in Michigan. In Michigan, there's uh, a weed called hairy bittercress. And I hear so much about hairy bittercress in Grand Rapids, which is on the West Coast. So sandier soils out there, I think you tend to see it more. And so even in Michigan, on the East Coast, I don't hear as much about hairy bittercress. But on the West Coast, of Michigan, I say coast because we have the Great Lakes, but um, I hear all the time. People are always complaining about hairy bittercress. It's a winter annual that pops up, and I very rarely see it or hear about it on the East Coast, and that's just in one state. So wow. things can change very, very quickly. So all these changes, they need to factor in to how you're going to build your program. And so having an understanding in the, in the fall, you can get better control of almost any weed. Even with a basic herbicide, in the summer, it's the most difficult timing to, to control weeds. That's why we've developed, you know, as New Farm, we've developed a herbicide like Armor Tech Tetra or SurePower um, that's made for controlling weeds in the middle of the summer when they're not growing. And then in the spring, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to control weeds in the spring, but it's not always the best timing. We have to be prepared for, uh, for another app later on. You know... Aaron, how many people don't know what you just talked about, especially the fall weed control? It's, you know, they kind of use it as break fix, but I don't think most TNO owners look at it through the lens that these are perennials 
and they're going to come up again. And that is a really yeah. important component. And when would you describe that fall zone for most of the Midwest when you would want to start um, selecting those type of herbicides? Right. So um, for me, for in Michigan, and this will change as you move further south, it's going to get a little bit later and later and later, right? Um, but in, I'm in Michigan. So in Michigan, it's like uh, I used to do research projects where we would spray a herbicide every two weeks from um, the end of August until it snowed. And almost every uh, every period that I waited longer, our herbicides worked better. And so we did this for a number of years. We did it on ground ID and different weeds. And so the later I waited, the better control I saw up to a certain point. And we don't have it nailed down when the certain point begins. And so um, I can tell people that if you make an application in October, that's a great timing. October is a great timing. And there are challenges that comes with that because we start to have leaves that fall and stuff like that. Sure. But October is such a wonderful timing for weed control. There is a point where weeds slow down so much that you start to lose control of uh, weed control. And so you can start to see that in November. And obviously every year is different, but I'm pretty confident that somewhere in October, from October 1st to October uh, 31st is, is a good timing. And they have to be translocating at that time. Yep. And so here's the caveat to these applications. One of the reasons why people love those springtime applications is because you see so much curling and epinacy, all those symptoms that you get from these plant growth regulating herbicides. Um, in the fall, because the herbicide's moving more below the ground to these vegetative structures, you do see less, you see it less above ground injury. And so they are translocating. And sometimes people interpret that as less weed control. But the cool thing is, even if you, even if you did get less weed control for whatever reason, you've weakened the plant. Now it has to go through the winter and survive that winter, um, after you just, herbicide so it's it's almost like you're using the weather as your aid to control that plant as well that is crazy and from a setting customer expectations you mentioned the growth regulator herbicides i can remember when we when i managed the inbound call centers for scott's lawn service one of the most frequently asked questions slash complaints would be i think you fertilized my weeds because they're getting bigger um, and so they would actually get bigger, right, before they began to curl and die. But um, right. but that those visual cues were important for customers. How do you set customer expectations um, on each of these types? Um, yes, I think setting customer expectations is a huge deal. Uh, we, often, I just think uh, customers don't often think of this as um, – well, they often think of it as just a simple practice, right? Here's a weed, you spray something, you kill it. What's, how come things are going wrong? And there's so much more to it. And, and I think we all do that in different arenas, right? I don't know as much about um, other science-based things. And so I just simply don't think about it. I just have this expectation based on commercials, based on whatever I've found. And so setting those expectations, I think, is really important. And I think it's probably become easier than it was we can communicate in so many different ways with our customers. And so I know, like, I mean, you could take mesotrione or tenacity, for instance. It's a herbicide that's going to turn the plant white. And I know that that's a symptom that seems there's something about the color white in a plant that's so unnatural that it turns off a customer often, mm -hmm. right? 
And so a simple communication of what's going to happen right? or the chances you're like, if, if there's, I always tell people this one, you run into a backyard full of wild violet, you should set the customer's expectation as we are not going to get excellent control from this one application. I want to assure you that I understand that I'm going to make an application now. It's not great. Say it's the summer, not a great timing. I am going to apply. We're going to set it back, but I'm going to come back in the fall and I'm going to make another better timed application. And this is a weed that's really difficult to control. And it's really going to take um, this program to make it disappear. And so setting that expectation is a really simple thing to do, but I do think it's really, really important. And so when it comes to symptoms, like you said, um, even, I don't know, people like information. People like to learn new things. So even sharing with people the difference between the springtime, you know, you're going to see a lot of curling, twisting. These dandelions have big tap roots. They have a tendency to come back, whatever the case may be, and give people information that they can read. They can choose to read. Maybe they won't. But um, I've found that there are tons of homeowners, because I get calls from them all the time, who are really, really interested in just making their lawns look nicer, look healthier. They just absolutely love everything about it. So there's a lot out there that I think heed the information that's given to them. And what have you lost if you've given it to them and they haven't heeded it? I used to argue this point incessantly. I would I would want to share with our customers, we invest in premium herbicides that include sulfentrazone and then sulfentrazone and then maybe even the cuticle conversation that you talked about. Do most homeowners need to know that? No. But do I want to know that maybe I'm paying five bucks more in application than I was with uh, a national provider because you've invested in this type of weed control? I think it's important that when you're adopting these strategies that you pass that along to your consumers so they know that you're doing that. 100%. And I think it goes a long way to tell people we are seeking to be efficient i don't just want to spray something and get your money for that application and then come back and spray something else get your money again without thinking about it and telling people that you've put thought into this that you have some expertise in this um makes you an expert in their eyes instead of somebody who just runs around with a uh, with a tank full of herbicides and sprays it makes you somebody who who shares thoughts that people can then hear those thoughts, understand them, and then start to relate to you uh, and start to relate to those thoughts in some way. So I agree. I think, I I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I'm sure there are some cases in where people don't want to hear it. They just, they just want you to do your job. Just make um, the weeds go away. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure those are there too, but I think the majority, some majority of people appreciate that. And so telling people, a little bit about why they might pay a little bit extra and the fact that it might be in a more a more efficient way to apply herbicides or a more efficient herbicide in the long run, um, I think could could gain you something and I think you have very little to lose there. I can agree more. Aaron, you are making learning about weeds fun. I appreciate it. We gotta <laughs> we have to listen to our Turfs Up Radio sponsors. I'm Beth Berry. I am your hostess here on Ahead of the Curb, and we will be right back after this word. What is up, Turf Sub Radio Nation? I'm Beth Berry. I'm your hostess for Ahead of the Curb. Every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, I can't wait to have you there.
so excited, so excited to have Aaron Hathaway from New Farm back with us today. Aaron, thanks for being here. Is it a gorgeous day in Michigan? It is. Fin it's finally. My gosh, finally. <laughs> so you've talked a lot this morning about um, herbicide strategy. And a couple things you mentioned that I don't think most would know is the importance of fall weed control. In fact, I know a lot of TNO companies who say if it's not popping out of the ground, I'm pulling out of, out of the mix to save money now. Um, and then the other topic I want to briefly cover before we dig into Forerunner, and I'm excited to talk about that, is the importance of labels and how you select that particular herbicide. So you were saying, you know, in the fall, you could go with some three ways, some more, some of the more inexpensive. And then you talked about the PPOs and why those are important in the summer um, as you're heading into a period where the turf and the grass slows down. So here in Indianapolis, we haven't had rain in a while. I think we're going to get some maybe the end of this week. But if I have, for instance, dandelions, because I do, <laughs> Uh, what's, what's a great strategy just for dandelions and the common broadleafs? Right. So the, I would say the common broadleafs, I always have three in my mind. Dandelions, one of them. Plantain, whether it's, um, buckhorn or, um, or broadleaf plantain. So those two plantains. And then white clover. Those are the three really, really common Midwest broadleaf weeds that I see in a lot of lawns. And as I mentioned, they're, they're all perennials, right? And so the interesting thing is that, um, and I don't want to get too wordy, but all of the, the herbicides that we've mentioned so far, except for the PPOs, are all the same mode of action. Um, 240, MCPA, MCPP, 240T, Dicamba, Fluoroxapir, Clin Clorax, all of those that I just rattled off are all plant growth regulators. And so they all are auxin mimics. They, and you mentioned this growth happens because this, this herbicide um, mimics a hormone in the plant, causes this erratic growth, and eventually, hopefully, kills the plant. That's the point. And so with, it's weird. What's weird is that each of these um, controls different weeds um, better or not as good as, as some others. And so you mentioned dandelion. Um, one of the best active ingredients for dandelion control is 2,4-D. And I can tell you, if, if nobody's ever done a little trial, I think it's really fun. You spray 240 and here right next to each other on dandelions. Triclopyr has very little activity on dandelion, even though um, it's a oxymimic, just like 240 is. And some of this has to do with just how the plant recognizes different looking molecules. It's able to metabolize it faster in some cases. And so we see all these differences. We have all these active ingredients that have different activities on different weeds. And that's what makes it just um so involved to kind of come up with a with a cut and dry plan that's going to work in every situation and that's why premium herbicides have kind of come along and, and helped out in those areas because it's a different way to put together these recipes and get a broader spectrum of weed control of all the different weeds that you might encounter out there and so um you asked about dandelion this time of year when it's dry i think um probably the number one thing to think about is the fact that when it's dry when it's hot these plants just aren't growing very much. And so sometimes, and I've seen end users do this. I know that many end users have so many accounts, they can't possibly stop. They just have to keep churning through. They've got to keep spraying. Sometimes 
if especially if the accounts don't have irrigation, so it's not getting water, if it's so dry, if it's just a charred lawn, that's I sometimes it just doesn't make sense to make the application. Of course, I, I understand true. that you got to make an application to, to make money, but I always think about things that um, some of these companies could do differently. And that's a situation in which sometimes it just doesn't make sense to spray a herbicide. If the one's irrigated, I think everything changes. You can keep these plants green. At least they're growing. You have a chance at controlling them. You have competition from the turf. But when it comes to controlling dandelions, um, we could go through every single weed out there and say, okay, this is the best active ingredient for that one. This is the best active ingredient for that one. Um, 240 is the best active ingredient for dandelions. It does a good job, but it's still a perennial plant. It still needs to be growing for translocation to happen. And it's also spring. So we have still top growth going on. And it's more difficult than people would think to really kill a mature dandelion plant with a, with a, it's a simple running It's got that taproot and it can always push up more, more foliage. The other thing to think about is the formulation of the herbicide. An amine formulated herbicide, when it's hot, when the sun is shining, it's much better to move to these amines. And that might, might start happening right now. We have a herbicide called Cool Power and a herbicide called Horsepower. And the only difference between these two herbicides is one is an ester formulation and Cool Power. Esters help to break down that cuticle a little better help to get more of the active ingredients into the plant. So almost every time an ester is going to work a little bit better than an amine formulation. However, there's a drawback. It can easily volatilize and move to those sensitive ornamental plants around the turf. And so choosing an amine in a, in a you know, hot period like this makes a lot more sense, especially when you're around sensitive ornamental plants so that you're not going to affect them. So would you suggest during a drought, which I don't think anywhere in the U.S. we're quite there yet, at least not mm -hmm. uh, where most of us operate, that actually no herbicides are the best route if you're in a full drought with no irrigation? Yep. So if there's no irrigation and we're, if you're really in the throes of a drought, yes. I, I don't think it always makes sense to make an application. Um, I don't know. If you see rain in the forecast, Beth, you can stimulate some growth a little bit. Uh, a little bit later, even after the application, I think it could be possible. But especially in the summer, this is where those PPOs can help as well. The, you know, in the middle of the summer when it's hot, these plants build up these thick, waxy cuticles. And so getting the active ingredient into the plant is really key. And then getting movement from there, which takes growth, is key as well. So, yeah, if you're in the throes of a massive drought and you just have no um, no irrigation at all, and that's key too, if you have irrigation, everything changes then I don't, yeah, it doesn't always make sense to make an application. Interesting. Okay, now for the long-awaited launch of Forerunner. I thought I had a drum roll sound effect, but I okay. don't. But that's that just going to have to do it. That one was pretty good, right? So we have been talking about Forerunner for a very long time. Or as Aaron Bucci says, who works with me at ATS, it's like Charlie Brown and his football. So uh, tell us all about it and why did it take so long to get it to market? Okay. Yeah. Um, we're excited about Forerunner 2. And um, I'll, I'll start with the, the painful part, the, the reason it took so long to get it to market. Uh, you know, the EPA is a, it's a busy place. They were, they were down many people. And so getting products through EPA has been a little bit slower lately, um, but they're building back up. EPA, truthfully, really seeks to work with us. And so um, we try to partner with them as much as possible. But in the end, um, so some of that took a little bit longer. And then we had an issue with some caps and 
the regulatory side of those caps and what kind of cap we needed, stuff that um, <laughs> nobody nobody could have foreseen. It just kind of popped up. Sometimes there are rules out there that um, everybody thinks we're following those rules because we haven't heard about it for a decade. And then something happens and then we are not, some of the rules maybe aren't followed as closely as possible or we had to redo something. And so some of this weird stuff happened. And so uh, all that to say that it took longer than we had hoped, obviously. Yeah. And you mentioned the cap. What was the deal with the mm-hmm. cap? Um, there's these, these, uh, there's a regular, there's regulations on the types of caps, child resistant caps that you need to use for, uh, smaller bottles. Oh, okay. And so, um, those caps also have to go through research. And so you have to show that the research has been done over a period of time. And so, um, uh, yeah, I don't know all the details on what was or wasn't done or, or what had to be done in, in the, uh, in the near, in the near past, uh, with these caps, but it, a lot of it had to do with these child resistant caps. Got it. Well, we have it. We have it landed at our facilities at Advanced Turf, but tell us all about this new remarkable herbicide. Okay, so Forerunner's uh, really exciting, and part of what's cool about it is right in that name, Four. Um, it's got four active ingredients. Uh, just to start, it is a 2,4-D-free herbicide. So there's no 2,4-D in it, which everybody likes those because they don't have to dip into their 2,4-D applications, right? You only get so many broadcast applications with herbicides with 2,4-D. So this one doesn't contain 2,4-D. What it does contain is NCPA, and that's kind of the best replacement for 2,4-D. And every time you see a herbicide that somebody says is 2,4-D free, usually the replacement is NCPA. Uh It's a very similar active ingredient, so it has very similar characteristics, and so it works on a lot of a lot of the same weeds. And so MCPA is the replacement in this particular product. And then there's dicamba. So MCPA, dicamba, triclopyr, and sulfentrazone. Triclopyr is always an exciting addition because it adds a little spectrum of control, especially on tough weeds like wild violet, like ground ivy. Weeds that have all these vegetative parts that move everywhere. Triclopyr is a really, really good translocating herbicide. And so to effectively kill some of these perennial plants that have these vegetative parts everywhere, this translocation uh, goes a long way to getting better control of these weeds. And then sulfentrazone. Sulfentrazone is one of those PPOs that we were talking about. And sulfentrazone has specific activity on yellow nut sedge. You can pick up some annuals and get some better control of some other weeds with it. But um, yellow nut sedge is the main weed that people are going after when they're using this a product that contains sulfentrazone. And so those four active ingredients together make it a herbicide that's going to kill a really wide, broad spectrum of broadleaf weeds. It's going to be safe on, on turf grass species. And then that sulfentrazone makes it a good candidate for a summer herbicide when that yellow nut sedge has reared its head. That is amazing. And do you want to talk about rates? Yep. So this product has a really wide uh, I wouldn't say really wide. It's got a little bit wider rate range. It's from three to four and a half pints per acre. And so I would say, um, one of the, re- I always get this question. Why would I spray the low rate and why would I ever spray the high rate? That was well, my next question. So yes. Yeah. That's a good question. 
And for this product in particular, what one of the things that is important as you choose herbicide is looking at the list of active ingredients. But even beyond that, you have to even look at the loadings of those active ingredients. Because if you have a herbicide that's going to deliver one pound of 2,4-D, for instance, and you have another one that's going to deliver a half a pound of 2,4-D, for instance, uh, the labeled rates, then they're not the same just because they contain the same active ingredient. And so I would say when you're going up against weeds like uh, wild violet, I would say that's when you want to go to the higher rate is going up against weeds like wild violet um, because it's always difficult to control. And so that's when you need more of this trichopyr. So more trichopyr is always going to get you a little bit better control. And then white clover, um, maybe one of the weaknesses of this product because it doesn't have MCPP, it doesn't have fluoroxapyr as white clover, but you can get good control. You just need to up that rate. And so um, going up to that four and a half, but if you're at four to four and a half pints per acre, you're going to get really good control of all these weeds. And going down to that lower rate, this is when I start thinking about when it's the fall time. It's a perfect time for weed control. You've got, uh, it's, it's October in Michigan. And you're going out and making an application with Forerunner. Maybe there's still some um, yellow nut sedge hanging around. And so you'll get that with the sulfentra zone, even at that three pint rate. And you, because your timing is so much better, you're going to get better, uh, better activity at that timing. And you can start to move that rate a little bit further down. This is going to be very, very exciting, Aaron. I assume all of your customers are as excited as we are at Advanced Turf to get this going. Oh yeah, I think um, I think this is going to be a herbicide that's that's obviously it's it's one that can be used year round. But the sulfentra zone makes it a kind of a game changer um, because you start to pick up, you know, one of those weeds that I hear complaints about all the time, yellow nut sedge, right? So beyond that. Sulfentrazone also helps to increase um, the speed of control, which people really like. Um, that's one of those callback things. If you get calls from yep. customers asking, hey, you just made an application, but I don't really see anything happening. Sometimes it can take up to two weeks before they see anything. Sulfentrazone can make that uh, happen a little bit faster. So the chances of a callback are, are less. Well, that is very exciting. What is next for New Farm? I assume you guys are on to the next active, or what, what are you doing? Yeah, so we're always working on, um, you know, coming out. Obviously, everybody likes a new active ingredient. I can tell you that new active ingredients are really difficult to come by. We have a new fungicide that we've been working on, but um, a lot of these brand new active ingredients are getting held up in, in EPA for a while, so we have some some time to wait for one of our fungicides that's coming out, but we have um, a lot of new herbicides on the horizon. We've kind of spruced up our, our new farm portfolio. So over the next uh, three to five years, we have a lot of exciting changes coming to our portfolio as far as herbicides for, for broadleaf weeds and for grassy weeds, uh, even in the homeowner market. So um, all that, and then we have a PGR called Anew, which we have a new liquid formulation coming out. Um, and Anu has been an absolutely awesome PGR for us. And Beth, if you ever have me come on again, talk, um, talking PGRs and home lawns, I love talking about that stuff because well, I think we'll there's do so much it. potential there. I know we have a cool. lot of customers who love the Anu product. Uh-huh. Aaron, if yep. we have some weed geeks out there, and we do, how could they reach out to you personally? Yeah, so I'd love to hear from 
from any of those uh, weed geeks, as you call them, and they can reach out to me. I think the most effective way is through my email address, which is very simple. So my name is Aaron Hathaway. My email address is Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, dot Hathaway, H-A-T-H-A-W-A-Y, at newfarm, N-U-F-A-R-M, dot com. Are the best, just the best, and you will be coming back to talk about that. And if anybody wants to buy Forerunner, please uh, hit me up at bberry at advancedturf.com and I will uh, direct you to the correct person. Aaron, we will see you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Beth.